This podcast is brought to you by Iman Publishing, Canada's leading independent legal publisher. When Iman approached us to do a podcast, one of the first things we talked about was the name. And we struggled, we went back and forth, had a couple different options, and, and we fixed pretty quickly on the idea of calling it the Lawyer's Lounge. And I gotta tell you, Iman, they weren't initially in favor <laughs> of that title, were they, Lisa? No, there was some pushback. A little bit of pushback. <laughs> um, and I think what we tried to explain and what all of you listening will, will I think, know um, and feel is uh, the idea of the Lawyer's Lounge, mm-hmm. uh, which is a place for lawyers, young and old, uh, uh, new and seasoned, uh, to come together and talk about all of the issues that we face from the mundane to the profound. And it's always been a place where I feel very much at home, uh, where there's a sense of community uh, and collegiality. And I thought that if we were gonna do this thing, um, that that's the feeling that we wanna evoke uh, over the airways. Yeah, so if you're listening in your car or on the subway or wherever, even if you're by yourself all day, the hope is that you can join us and we can talk with you and talk with our guests and, you know, create that same sense of community in this podcast that you might find plunking down on the couch at the Krabby Lawyers Lounge in your local courthouse. Welcome to the Lawyers Lounge, a criminal law-focused podcast. Wherever you are, whenever you are, the Lawyers Lounge is always open. Come on in. Hey, Lisa told me to tell you this. We are not your lawyer. The Lawyer's Lounge is an entertainment podcast and is not legal advice. A quick note to our listeners. Uh, Many of the segments that we recorded for the podcast were recorded before the COVID-19 crisis. And so that is why you don't hear um, any mention of the massive pandemic uh, impacting all of us in these interviews. Uh, I did have a chance to catch up with uh, my co-host, Lisa Jorgensen, uh, today on March 26th, and this is her COVID-19 criminal law diary. Lisa, we haven't um, seen each other spoken since uh, COVID-19 has been declared a global pandemic. And uh, I've been keeping a very low profile, uh, exercising social isolation uh, for a number of reasons, including uh, members of my family that are uh, immune compromised. And I know that you've had a very different experience with uh, the crisis than I have. And, I want to know how you're doing. <laughs> uh, I'm doing okay. It has been a surprisingly hectic couple weeks. Um, I think, I guess, as you know, I don't know if everybody else knows, I, I'm on the board of directors of the CLA, Criminal Lawyers Association. And we have been honestly working around the clock the past couple weeks trying to help the courts, help the crowns, help our clients, help everybody's clients. Uh, 
keep the court system operating on a skeleton staff and to move a paper-based system fully into the digital age, seemingly at the drop of a hat. Um, so that has not been smooth, I think, to put it lightly. Yeah. Uh, but but you know I think it's it's been it's been good work I think when we're, we're not sure about actual numbers but something like over a thousand people have been released from custody over the past week or so and a lot of that has happened as a result of CLA volunteers and I'm I'm just one of hundreds of people who have deployed across the province to run bail hearings and do time served guilty pleas stuff like that um, so. You know, it's, it's it's been exhausting physically and emotionally, but I think we've done a lot of good work and I'm happy to have been a part of it. So maybe you can just kind of take our listeners back and I'm sure there, there are aspects of this that you won't be um, permitted to, to talk about, but mm -hmm. the date that sticks in my mind, I think is March 15th or 16th, it's a Sunday. And I think CLA members in Ontario were kind of glued to the listserv or their Twitter just waiting for John Struthers to tell us what we were meant to do <laughs> the following day on Monday uh, with all our court appearances. Um, so tell me what you were doing that day uh, and how you were feeling um, and kind of take us through the chronology from there. So it's amazing to me that that's only 10 days from when we're recording this. It feels like a very long time ago. Yeah. Uh, starting basically the Friday before all that, and I'm, I'm not privy to some of the things that John Struthers has been doing in various places, but uh, sort of on the Friday before that happened, the CLA board started talking quite a lot about the fact that this is gonna require a more extreme change to our practice than the courts we thought had been trying to get away with so far. It seemed inevitable that as every other business closes down, we're gonna to have to make big changes too. Um, and so what follows is what always happens with professionals in a crisis, an awful lot of conference calls. Um, but we were, we were on the phone a lot. We had an emergency board meeting on Sunday, I guess that would be the 15th, and decisions were made about how we were gonna proceed. And I think we decided that health and safety had to be a paramount consideration, and we were not the only ones that felt that way. I know. Over the course of that weekend, there were calls between all of the Superior Court judges, the OCJ judges, the MAG powers that be, everybody was talking to each other, trying to figure out how do we, how do we hit the ground running without letting down people's liberty interests? How do we make this functional? And how do we communicate this to quite a disparate and independently minded group of people, which is to say the criminal defense bar? Yeah. Uh, I think communication could have been a lot better over the course of that weekend, I know friends of mine that were crown attorneys, that are crown attorneys, uh, they didn't get a lot of communication as things were ramping up, but whereas the CLA did a pretty good job of telling our members what was happening as close as we could to real time, it was, there was, I mean, I honestly, I felt like every five minutes there was a new, a new plan, a new piece of key information. It was a very dynamic situation, but I, I think ultimately with the benefit of hindsight that we made good decisions and those decisions ended up being fairly prescient, which is that we were preparing ourselves to have to move to a fully remote system. Yeah. And we thought the OCJ says we're not going to go remote. We're going to keep doing things. We don't think that makes any sense. We don't think it's going to be workable. So we need to be preparing ourselves for a fully remote OCJ. And all the efforts we made to get ready for that have certainly paid off now that we've been 
now that we are making that transition and now that we're helping the courts to um, helping the courts to, to make that change. Because, you know, we've had CLA volunteers on the ground every day in court since Monday the 16th, and we are slowly pulling our people out of the courts right now. It was another 10 courts last night we pulled out of, and today it'll be another five or six because we are seeing duty counsel come online remotely. We're seeing the crowns figure out how to do this, judges figure out how to do this. But I think without our volunteers on the ground to smooth that transition, it just it wouldn't have been possible for that all to happen. So. Yeah, I mean, that's probably a very rambling answer that doesn't take you back to the 15th, but it, it does feel like time has been compressed and stretched out a lot over the past 10 days. Well, I guess I, what strikes me is that um, there were there was advocacy going on in many different levels. You've got the CLA volunteers advocating on individual cases in court and, and remotely in some cases, and then you've got the leadership of the CLA advocating for uh, systemic changes uh, to happen incrementally uh, as the day, hours and days um, drag on during the crisis. But I think what I'd like to kind of understand is, I know that you were in court, um, what, like to paint a picture for us, what, what does a courthouse look like um, that's nearly completely empty and, and try to, for those of us who couldn't get out, um, what was it like? You know, it's it's been very funny because it, it's changed a lot since the 16th. Every day the courts are a little emptier. Uh, every day I think the relationships between the Crown and Defense get a little stronger. Admittedly, I think people's nerves are starting to be a bit frayed by this point, but it's been, it's honestly been a real success story for cooperation, if nothing else. There are real challenges to getting this stuff running, and I think None of this would have been possible if the Crown attorneys hadn't played ball and, and been so good about changing their approach to some matters. So, I mean, taking you back to, for example, a day last week when I was at 2201 Finch, I went in in the morning, I was one of two, I believe, CLA volunteers. There were about five legal aid duty counsel on the ground, very busy day for bail hearings. We tried to work cooperatively with duty councils, so saying, you know, if there are any complex or weird matters, can we take them off your hands? Uh, one of my colleagues was running the list in 205 because there is no duty council in that in that courtroom. So, you know, taking messages from council, doing all the things that duty council does on legal aid matters, but for anybody. So we were telling everybody, don't come to court, send an email, we will speak to your matter. Um, that day we did a guilty plea for a guy who had private counsel. Um, in, co in collaboration with that private lawyer. He, his lawyer had said, I think he's at a time serve situation next week. When the guy came into the box, he said, I want to plead now, I want to plead now. And so I went to the crowd and said, come on, man, like seven days. Can we, uh, can we figure something out here? Crown was great, said, you know what? Exceptional circumstances, we can live with that. Went back to private counsel. They said, hey, if you're there, by all means, here's the agreement. Did the guilty plea guy got to walk out of the box and go home to his family um so those are the kind of sort of back of a napkin things that were happening but they were happening with appropriate consultation uh i've run more bail hearings in the past two weeks than maybe in the past year um like you know five five to seven if not more a day um some of them quite serious. Another success story from 2201, that same, might have been the same day, might have been a different day, honestly, I can't remember, but we had a 469, so an accessory after the fact uh, case come in, and 
duty council said, look, we don't have capacity to deal with that uh, since we have a full list of bails that we can actually figure out here in this courthouse. And so they handed it off to me and thanks to a really great crown who was on the file, super cooperative court at the Superior Court in Toronto, we were able to get a young woman released on you know, a serious charge on consent through email and friendly phone calls all day long. So I think there have been some differences from courthouse to courthouse, but by and large, you're seeing duty council, CLA members, whether that be in-person volunteers or you know lawyers like yourself sitting at home, sending in instructions, and the crowns trying so hard to find ways to collaborate, because we all just realized it's gonna be impossible to manage the volume of people coming through if we don't do that. So yeah, and yesterday I was in Scarborough and 2201, and there was nobody there. I think one surety rocked up you know we couldn't actually we, we helped that guy but basically no one's coming to court they may be appearing by video most accused are calling in from police divisions or we're calling them in they participate in their bail hearing over the phone from the division i know scarborough was trialing a project where crown council calls in so they're not required to be there in person so a lot of it's happening over audio conference yeah and we're getting better at it every day well, thank you, Lisa. Um, we'll talk again soon and, uh, and stay safe. Yeah, you too. Bye, Danielle. All right, now we're going to jump into our advocacy quick fire. I'm going to ask you questions. You're going to ask me questions and hopefully we'll both learn something. Awesome. What's the best advocacy tip you ever received? Hmm. The best tip uh, that I ever received was from a mentor who told me, it's not about you, it's about the client, get over yourself and get back into court. And that tip can apply to almost every situation. Anytime you feel stuck, uh, anytime you have a question, reminding yourself about the client is often the way out of your jam. I like that. What about you? I mean, other than slow down, which I hear a lot. Mm. Uh, no, I think the, I think the best advice I've ever received was to remind myself always who I'm talking to, which is that I may think I have a brilliant argument or I have a point that I want to make, but that doesn't matter. What matters is how do I persuade the judge or the jury or the person hearing the argument and how do I put it in terms that make sense to them that will help them find their way in my direction. So think always about their needs rather than how I would want to present it for myself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, managing client relationships is one of the most important things that we do, not only because happy clients are clients who probably pay your bills, but because we are their only point of contact to the justice system. And probably their relationship with us is going to affect how they perceive the entire process. I think managing a client relationship really depends on the individual, the circumstances. You know, I have a sophisticated business person coming in to see me. I may interact with them in a different way than I do the 16-year-old kid who, you know, is having a hard time in school and is coming to me because he's gotten in trouble with the law. So it's, it's all about understanding where the people are coming from, their background, you know, their level of education in some cases what they need from you to feel comfortable. Are they a nervous person? Are they feeling really confident? I I've had clients who can be awful to deal with, frankly, who can be abusive. And one thing that I don't tolerate is clients 
being abusive towards my staff or people that I work with. Mm. And those are probably the only times that I've ever been really angry with a client is mm. if they, one, aren't honest with me or two, don't treat people in my professional world with respect, whether that be the crown attorney or my secretary, whomever. Um, but I try to be respectful and understand where my clients are coming from and to meet them where they need to be. If they need me to flip them a text message because that's how they communicate, I'm happy to do that. If they want me to be stern and capable, I can do that for them. And if they want me to talk to them in a more casual way, I, you know, I'm happy to do that too. Whatever makes the client feel comfortable is how I try to interact with them. How about you, Danielle? Same. I echo uh, all of your comments completely. What I would say, though, is that in the initial years of practice, sometimes it's hard to get your arms around the boundaries issue. And particularly when you're young, particularly when you're a woman, um, you know, it can be difficult to establish boundaries and to make sure that they're maintained throughout the um, solicitor-client relationship. And, um, you know, it takes a while to figure out, for example, what is an emergency phone call? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what is a phone call that can be scheduled for the following day? And there are years and years and years of your practice where you have a difficult time figuring that out and you're conducting phone calls 9, 10, 11 p.m. Uh, at night that really should be happening the next day. Um, and so... That's something that I tell young lawyers all the time, uh, that they really need to take charge of the relationship and the, and the pace of communication and the timing of communication. And I think clients want that and they respect that. They, they want you to be in charge of the relationship, um, just like any other professional would be uh, in charge of the relationship. You know, you don't, you're not, you don't have 24-7 access to your doctor. So you, you don't have 24-7 access to your criminal lawyer, unless it's an emergency. Yeah, I think that is such good advice. The, probably the biggest lifestyle improvement I've had in the past 18 months has been internalizing that message for the first time, which <laughs> is like my client will not fire me if I refuse to speak to him at midnight on a Saturday about his feelings about court last week um, right. or her feelings. The best thing I ever did was one night in a moment of bravery say to a client as I answered the phone, have you been arrested? To which she said, no, I just wanted an update. And I was like, do you know what time it is? <laughs> She's like, oh, I don't know. And I'm like, this is not a Friday night call. You can call me at work on Monday. And it was the first time I told the client, call me on Monday. Do not call me on the weekend. And it was glorious. I wasn't fired. Yeah. Nothing bad happened. Right. And she didn't call me again for an update on her case Friday at 10. Right. Glorious. Right. Good for you. Well, it takes a while, though. It takes, it takes a long while. And I think part of it is that it, it, everything feels like an emergency to a young lawyer. Um, and it, it does take some experience and skill to distinguish between um, emergency and non-emergency situations. So, and so no one, no one out there who's feeling this way should feel bad that they're feeling this way. It takes time. Yeah, I think it's also partially the expectations that the profession puts on you in some circumstances where you're told you should be passionate about your job. This is, you know, somebody's life, their liberty is at stake. And you can feel bad about, you know, I'm going to go to the bar with some friends or I'm going to make dinner with my partner and not 
be responsive to what my client wants in this exact moment. You, you can be made to feel like you're less committed to the job because you prioritize having your own life. But I think most people that make it in this profession find a way to have a little bit of balance. Otherwise, you, you burn out, you go crazy, and then you can't service your clients. So I think you do need to find a way to find that balance, at least in some measure. What's your area of focus? Drug-related offenses, youth criminal justice, sexual offense cases? Learn everything you need to know with Iman Publishing's Criminal Law Series, edited by Brian Greenspan and Justice Enzo Rondinelli. Currently at 13 volumes covering an array of challenging topics, these concise guides offer practical insights for both Crown and defense. Learn more at imon.ca slash lawyers lounge criminal. For our listeners, Iman is offering 10% off the Criminal Law Series. Just visit imon.ca slash lawyers lounge criminal and enter code lawyers lounge at checkout. Our next segment, we're very lucky to be joined by Erica Tardy from Pack and Company in Vancouver to give us some insight into the year ahead at the Supreme Court of Canada. Now, Eric, as I'm looking at the docket for 2019-2020, it looks a little light on interesting criminal law. Are there any upcoming hearings that you think will be of particular interest to criminal lawyers? Yeah, Lisa, I agree. The the docket maybe isn't as robust as it has been in in other years at this stage. Um, There have been some recent cases that have been granted leave that I think will be of interest uh, to some. Um, The um, solitary confinement uh, challenges and challenges to the constitutionality of the CCRA uh, were granted leave just recently. And the uh, Via Rail terrorism case was just granted leave and will be going up uh, on the constitution of the jury issue. And I'll talk about those cases in a few minutes. Before we go there, there are a couple of decisions that are on reserve right now that I think will be of interest to practitioners. And, and the first of those is a case called KGK uh, out of Manitoba. It was heard on September 25th of last year, and so we could probably expect a decision to come down any time on that, that case. And that case is a, it's a Jordan-related case. I know we're all kind of sick of talking and hearing about Jordan, but uh, the, the court is kind of poised to uh, rule on the issue of whether judicial delay is part of the total overall delay calculation that's to be assessed under the Jordan framework. And so uh, in that case, an accused had been, uh, was waiting for a verdict after a sexual interference uh, trial involving his stepdaughter. And uh, a day before the verdict, he brought his 11B motion. And the delay um, between the end of trial and the judge issuing the decision was nine months. And the complaint there was that that had been too long. The state was refused. And uh, the court held that um, judicial delay is not going to count under the Jordan framework unless it rises to the level of, quote, shocking, inordinate, or unconscionable delay. So obviously not a run-of-the-mill standard that uh, defense counsel can meet very easily. And the court found at all levels that the nine-month delay in uh, the the reasons in the verdict in that case was not... uh, was not unconstitutionally long. So the court is going to is going to tell us whether or not the judges are, are included in the Jordan analysis. And despite 
uh, Justice Moldaver's uh, statements about all parties, the court, the Crown, and the defense having to contribute, uh, the court is perhaps on the verge of excluding judges from um, the ju their part in the Jordan analysis, at least as it relates to writing their judgments. So uh, it'd be interesting to keep our eye on that one. Um, I w if, you're, I w if you're a betting person, I wouldn't bet on the court including judicial writing time in the Jordan analysis. Yeah, I guess we will see. <laughs> Yeah, the other case is a case called Zora out of the British Columbia Court of Appeal. It was argued on December 4th, 2019. So again, you know, could come down relatively soon. And there the issue was in relation to uh, the mens rea for uh, the offense of breaching bail conditions, basically. And uh, in that case, uh, Mr. Zora had been charged with a bunch of drug offenses and had been granted bail on the condition to uh, you know, obey a curfew and present himself at the door within five minutes of a check. And he had failed to do that a couple of times and you know, had, had held out at trial that uh, you know, he was drug addicted and he had just slept through the knock on the door and he actually was home. Um, and the majority of the Court of Appeal for British Columbia held that the necessary mens rea for the, the, the bail breaches was a completely objective standard and held that it was unreasonable for him to have slept through the knocks uh, and he was guilty, guilty of the offenses. Uh, Madam Justice Fenlon dissented and held that there was nothing in the legislation, in the, in the language of the legislation that would suggest that uh, the presumptive subjective, subjective fault element should be displaced. And so that case went up it was argued uh, just before Christmas, and uh, we'll get the decision any time. One would hope that the court, the court will find that subjective fault is is required, because we can all imagine that lots of lots of the folks who are being charged with these administration of justice offenses over and over again, the breach of bail, are struggling with all sorts of mental health issues and addiction issues, and so. To hold them uh, uh, criminally liable on a completely objective standard seems just completely unreasonable to me. The thing that I noticed in this hearing, Eric, was that the Ontario AG supported Zora's position, uh, which might have made for a bit of an awkward hearing room. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought that was a, a you know a very reasonable position for the, the Ontario AG to take, and I just I just think I just think the BC Court of Appeal got it wrong. Right. And. Um, they sat five on the issue, um, and Justice Fenlon was the only dissenting judge, but I think she got it right, um, especially in the context when we've talk, been talking about what role these types of offenses should even be playing in the criminal justice system now in a post-Jordan world. I mean, we've, we've talked about um, just getting these, these types of offenses completely out of the criminal justice system. So, yeah. And so do you think we'll get it? That maybe increases the number of convictions in these cases doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to me. Do you think we'll get a broader statement from the court on the place of, of these offenses entirely, or do you think you'll, they'll stick strictly to the the question, the mens rea question? You know, it's hard to know, and I don't know. I, I don't know to what extent you know the the sentiment that that I just expressed was ever voiced in the hearing. Um, you know, it might be, you know, it might be something that's on you know some of the judges' mind, you know, having you know written Jordan and some Cody and some of these follow-up decisions, but 
you know, it's a fairly specific reform has been talked about. So I don't know whether they'll expressly touch on that, but uh, you'd like to think that there'll be some recognition of, of you know, the, the potential for delay that these, these uh, the proliferation of these kinds of offenses can have. And we should really shouldn't be doing anything to encourage prosecution of these types of offenses or conviction for these types of offenses. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, the Supreme Court recently granted leave in the Jasser case, as you earlier mentioned. Were you surprised to see leave granted on this case? I was. I mean, because, you know, it was a fairly, um, it's a fairly complicated case. And one interesting procedural thing is that the, the Court of Appeal for Ontario essentially I understand it bifurcated the appeal arguments and went forward and ruled on the composition of the jury issue uh, and the error in, in terms of what the trial judge did in relation to rotating triers or static triers um, and ordered a new trial based on that error. Um, the court hasn't dealt with some of the other kind of maybe more interesting legal issues arising out of Jasser, uh, including, you know, grounds that included the fitness of one of the accused to participate yeah. in the trial, which as I understand it wasn't, wasn't raised until the sentencing stage. Um, and so, you know, what's going to happen if this, the Supreme Court of Canada overturns the Ontario Court of Appeal and the jury question, you know, the Ontario Court of Appeal is, is then going to have to move ahead and hear these other, uh, other grounds of appeal and the convictions could be overturned uh, a second time on a completely different basis. So just procedurally, it's, uh, it's interesting. I have to say the whole issue of rotating versus, and sta versus static triers is something that, that doesn't, doesn't come up very often in, in British Columbia. It's just not, it's not a debate that council have very often. Um, it's, it's very much an Ontario thing. So um, it'll be interesting to see what the court does with that. And they're, they're gone now anyway. Right? Well, that's right. I mean, yeah. I, you know, it, you know, and I suppose in that same vein, um, you know, the, the court also granted leave uh, in the AG Canada and BC Civil Liberties Association and uh, AG Canada and the CCLA in relation to the solitary confinement cases. Um, and so they're going to hear those two cases involving the constitutionality of the, the administrative segregation regime that used to exist. Um, but you know, there, uh, an entirely new regime as a result of these two cases has been put in place and received royal assent on June 21st of last year. So there is a new set of provisions in place uh, that's, you know, governing how these inmates are being uh, dealt with in, quote, structured intervention units. And I had a quick look at the new provisions and they don't, they certainly don't seem to take all of the uh, lessons that might emerge from the judgment. So it'll be interesting to see uh, if the court goes along with the CCLA in its arguments that um, you know, solitary confinement needs to be really almost banned for people with mental illnesses mm. or people who are kind of under the age of 21, um, you know, because those types of really strict restrictions um, do not exist even in the current provisions that have been replaced used to replace the old one. So the court could be kind of foreshadowing to the government that they might reasonably expect another challenge if um, if they go as far as the CCLA would want them to go. Mm -hmm. 
Um, I, I know that leave is never a guarantee, but are you aware of any interesting cases that uh, leave is pending right now or that you think might be going up? <laughs> well, yeah, I think there's, um, we, I know that there's a, the issue going up to the court um, in relation to the court's decision in Morrison, um, which was in, for those that aren't familiar immediately with that case, was an internet luring case um, in which the court made it clear that the, um, the Crown, if it disproved um, that the, the accused had taken all reasonable steps, they still had to go further and prove that the accused subjectively thought the person was underage. And that you know, the raising of a reasonable steps is a defense. And the Crown, you know, the Crown might neg negative a defense, but they, they still have to prove the mens rea positively. The bur that burden never shifts. The Crown always has that burden. And, um, you know, just because the court might find that reasonable steps were not taken, it, you know, a conviction wouldn't flow automatically. There were not, as the court had suggested in another case called George, there were not two separate independent pathways to conviction. There was only one. There's, there has o only ever been one. Um, and, and that, you know, the Crown having to prove mens rea is a fundamental kind of building block of our criminal justice system. So um, as soon as that judgment came out, I think there was a lot of confusion. We've started to see a, a number of divergent academic articles and now um, court cases that have uh, taken that reasoning and applied it to other cases. So there's been a case out here where that, that rationale from Morrison has been applied to sexual assault. Um, there was a case called uh, Angel in the BC Court of Appeal was just uh, heard and is on leave to the Supreme Court of Canada, um, where the court basically um, asked the Supreme Court of Canada to uh, clarify if they really meant what they said in Morrison. <laughs> and, um, you know, some academics have said that Morrison should be completely limited to only police undercover operations and that there's some language in Morrison that makes it clear that that's what the court was doing. But I think it's equally clear that um, the court judgment in Morrison in referencing George was trying to make it really clear that there are not two pathways to conviction. The Crown always have to prove mens rea and so, you know, there's, I counted it up there, you know, in terms of reasonable mistake, either to consent or age, that affects at least 20 different offenses in the criminal code. Yeah. And, you know, the, the court really has to clear up what it means um, for the Crown to, uh, you know, negative a, a reasonable steps argument or mistake of, uh, of fact argument. Are you suggesting that Morrison might have been a little bit confusing? It was confusing because there's, as I say, there is some language where the, the majority seems to go out of its way to say, in the context of this case, in the context of an undercover police operation where you're not talking about an actual underage victim, it's a police officer posing as someone who's underage. But, but then they go on and they try to explain what they meant to say in George, what yeah. the finding was in George, and, mm -hmm. and George was... Um, not an alluring case. It was a sexual interference case. And so um, when the defense in Angel um, went to the Court of Appeal for British Columbia and said, 
So this is the very example that was offered up in Morrison. This is an interference case, and the judge in Angel specifically said, I think, I believe the accused subjectively thought the person was underage, but didn't take reasonable steps, and so I'm convicting. That kind of right reasoning was prohibited in Morrison. And so it is a very confusing you know, set of affairs that we've got right now, and even though the court might not have the appetite to do it so quickly after Morrison, I think because it has such implications for so many criminal offenses um, going forward, and they really should clarify this before it becomes a real mess. I, I think the thing that's, that it always confuses me when I, when I think about the mens rea, you know, I've always conceived of it as the Crown having to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the accused was aware of the non-consent um, or was a, was aware of um, the age, um, but how does that square with the the universal position that it's a general intent offense? I think, and I think at some point the court's going to have to pick a horse. Yeah, and I and I think that's right. And uh, you know the you know when you read some of the academic commentary, the the upshots seem to be. Well, you know, surely they can't mean what they said because if, if they meant what they said, then they've departed from about 10 or 15 years of established jurisprudence. Um, and we know the court is certainly capable of doing that. We saw them do it in Jordan. We've seen it in other contexts. But they usually do it pretty explicitly uh, when they're going to do that. And so if that's not really what they intended to do and if they really did want to limit it to police you know, undercover operations like in Morrison, they should come out and make that really clear. And they should just pick a decision and go with it. Um, you know, I think, you know, either, either interpretation is, you know, legally defensible from a, a principled analysis, but they should just make it clear which way they're going. Yeah. Um, looking beyond individual cases, are there any recent trends you're seeing out of the Supreme Court? Well, I think, I know talking to criminal lawyers across the country, um, you know, one of the things that we've noticed is, um, you know, the court's sitting a lot of reduced panels recently. You know, they'll sit five and seven routinely. Um, and they'll very often, you know, issue oral reasons with, you know, reasons to follow or they won't issue reasons at all. And, and even in some cases, um, you know, there'll be a, dis, a dissenting judge, but no reasons. Um, I had that personally happen in a, a case called Robinson about a year and a half ago. And so- That's wild. You know, I, yeah, it's, it's very strange to me. And I feel it's very, from just my own opinion, I think it's very dissatisfying as a litigant to go, you know, go to, because in most cases they're granting leave, aside from the ones that just go up as a right, to have the court pronounce on the issue. And they're, you know, they're sure I understand the argument that, you know, maybe the majority below or the court below expressed the legal concepts eloquently and articulately, but you're still the Supreme Court of Canada. Yeah. And I really think the court should, um, should, should, Consider course correcting, and um, and write more judgments, and especially when there's a dissent. I mean, it's it's completely unsatisfactory in my view to have the you know members of the the you know the, the land's highest court disagree with the result but not explain why. 
right? Yeah. I mean, the so, three-two yeah, conviction those, those are some concerning trends. I, I don't understand the rationale for it. I know that the chief, in doing some other things like moving the court, um, the hearings, that is kind of after more transparency. But you know, not writing judgment seems to me the antithesis of more transparency. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with you entirely. Yeah. Um, I think that's everything that we had for you. Anything that you want to add before we wrap up, Eric? No, just, uh, you know, um, going to enjoy listening to the podcast, and I'm quite happy to have joined you. Thank you very much. It's the winner of the 2019 Walter Owen Book Prize. It has been described as an invaluable resource to the entire legal community in Canada by the chair of the Canadian Foundation for Legal Research. Expand your knowledge about Indigenous identity, best practices, courts, and Gladue reports with Indigenous people and the criminal justice system, a practitioner's handbook by Jonathan Rudin. To learn more and order your copy today, visit imon.ca slash indigenous. For our listeners, Iman is offering 10% off. Just visit imon.ca slash indigenous and enter code lawyerslounge at checkout. I want to thank Eric Gattardi for joining us this episode. And of course, a big thank you to uh, Lisa. The Lawyer's Lounge is produced, engineered, and edited by Alex Ross of Never Sleeps Network. Directed and published by Danan Hawes. And marketing by Jordan Bloom. My name is Paul Emond. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Lawyer's Lounge. We at Iman Publishing are committed to providing best-in-class criminal law content, including our award-winning criminal law series, edited by Brian Greenspan and Justice Rondinelli, new initiatives like the Lawyer's Lounge podcast, as well as our Iman exam prep resources and criminal law casebooks for law students. 